0: Welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 20th of January with me, Ian Welsh. A few days ago, I spoke with Michelle Grog, Vice President, Corporate Responsibility and Sustainable Development at Cargill. We covered a lot of ground, including the role of food companies in responding to global food supply challenges, such as the war in Ukraine, and also the role in helping farmers and growing communities develop successful long-term resilience. That's coming up a little bit later. And earlier this week, I caught up with Innovation Forum's Natasha Bodnar for an update on the Future of Food Europe conference in Amsterdam on the 3rd and 4th of May. First, though, it's time for some sustainable business news. As the annual World Economic Forum meetings kicked off in Davos, the 2023 Global Risks Report was published, exploring, as ever, the perceived greatest risks facing us all, the results taken from WEF's poll of 1,200 leaders across its networks. The poll asked for estimates of the impacts of a number of potential risks on a two-year and ten-year timeframe. Over the shorter term, the cost of living crisis, natural disasters and extreme weather events, and geoeconomic confrontation were the top three risks. Over the longer term, failure to mitigate climate change, failure of climate change adaptation, and natural disasters and extreme weather events were the top three. Biodiversity loss and ecosystem collapse came in fourth. Six out of the top ten ten-year risks are environmental. The report says that the coming decade will be characterised by environmental and societal crises driven by underlying geopolitical and economic trends. It describes some of the emerging risks as eerily familiar. Inflation, cost of living, trade wars, social unrest, geopolitical confrontation and even the spectre of nuclear war. All these risks are set against a backdrop of the growing pressures of climate change impacts and ambitions as the window for opportunity for 1.5 Celsius transition rapidly shrinks. The delegates at Davos have certainly got their work cut out. Some encouraging news from dairy giant Danone with its announcement of plans to cut absolute methane emissions from its fresh milk supply chain by 30% by the end of the decade. This will be achieved by Danone working with farmers and suppliers on developing regenerative practices. Methane is, of course, a particularly damaging greenhouse gas, and more than 100 countries had pledged to cut 30% from their 2020 methane emissions by 2030 at the 2021 COP Climate Summit in Glasgow. However, few have established how they will meet this. Danan operates in 20 countries supplied by some 58,000 dairy farmers, and had already cut 14% of methane between 2018 and 2020. The company's head of regenerative agriculture policy told Reuters that there are some relatively simple changes that can make a big difference, giving as an example, separating of solids and liquids when treating manure, which cuts methane release and produces fertilizer that can be better than synthetic alternatives. The newly published Circularity Gap Report 2023 highlights once again the opportunities that exist to cut material extraction to move human activity back within safe planetary limits, but also that we are collectively nowhere near achieving them. In fact, the circularity of the global economy has gone backwards. It has shrunk from 9.1% in 2018 to 8.6% in 2020 to 7.2% now, the report says, pointing out that we rely almost exclusively on virgin materials and that material extraction is rising every year. This needs to be cut by around a third to bring human activity back within the safe limits of the planet. This is achievable the report says by embedding core circular economy principles around for example consuming less for longer and better reuse in four key global systems. Agri-food, mobility and transport, manufactured goods and consumables and the built environment. The Innovation Forum team is working hard on developing our 2023 Spring Conference season. We'll be discussing responsible sourcing and ethical trade, sustainable apparel and textiles, the future of food, and business and climate action and scope three emissions. Do go to the Innovation Forum website for all the latest information and how to register at best rates. The next in Innovation Forum's Future of Food Conference series will be held in Amsterdam on the 3rd and 4th of May. To find out how the event is coming together, I caught up this week with my colleague Natasha Bodnar. Welcome back to the podcast, Natasha. Thanks, Ian. So, Natasha, Future of Food, 34th of May in Amsterdam, what's this year's format?
1: So as you may already know, this event is now going to be back in person, this will be the first time in two years, so the format will be heavily focused around engagement, candid discussions and making some new connections in person.
0: Who's the event for this year?
1: So we're going to have a big mix of people involved from across the food and drink industry, meaning that the event is for anyone who is interested in working in or wants to learn more about building more sustainable, resilient and regenerative food systems.
0: What are the big themes then in the food sector that you're seeing emerging as you've been working in the event?
1: It's looking at how to adapt to the market shifts and planetary pressures that we're seeing across obviously all industries, but particularly around food. So there's going to be four main themes that have emerged so far, which is looking at responsible sourcing, climate action, farming and land use, and nature-positive production. And within this, obviously, we're gonna be getting more and more focused in breakout sessions and case study sessions, looking at those four themes that give people a really chance to have some more focused discussions around those points.
0: You know, there's some really interesting themes emerging, and we'll, of course, have lots of different types of sessions, lots of different session formats to really get to grips with the big issues. Are there any sessions that you've added to the agenda recently?
1: Yeah, actually right now we're currently working on shaping a new session which is going to be looking at soil health for sustainable agriculture and this is going to be led by Yara.
0: What about new panellists or anyone that's getting involved in the event? Anybody new of note?
1: People that we've just confirmed over the last week or so include Carla Hillhorst, who's the Chief R&D Officer at Unilever, Marika McCauley-Sign, who's the Global Vice President of Sustainability at Mars, and then just came on board as well as Catherine David, the Director of Collaboration and Change at RAP. We have quite a few others, so definitely worth looking at who else we have.
0: And I think it's worth saying that we're still looking for expert panellists. If you'd like to get involved or any of your colleagues, do let us know. Natasha, how can listeners get involved? What are the opportunities? So at
1: this point, the best way really would be to register online. And this also gives you the chance to make the most of our current discount deadline that we're offering. So if you register by the end of next week, which should be Friday the 27th, there is a 400 euro discount on passes. And it's best to do this on our conference website. Because we do have four current tracks at the conference, we also highly recommend booking as part of a team so that you can all get involved and make sure that you're getting as most out of the conference as possible. And if you are going to be booking as a team, then do get in touch directly with myself. My email is natasha.bodner at innovationforum.co.uk. That information is also on the website if you can't find it. And then there's also opportunities around sponsorship as well still. So again, if you're interested in that, then do get in touch.
0: Great. Now, it's certainly worth pointing out a significant discount, €400 of passes, if you register before the 27th of January. Natasha, it'll come around very fast. Looking forward to the event in May in Amsterdam. Thanks, Ian. As part of our ongoing series of interviews with food sector experts at Cargill, I recently spoke with the company's Vice President for Corporate Responsibility and Sustainable Development, Michelle Grog. We spoke about how big food companies should respond in times of food supply crisis, and how cross quality thinking can help develop production resilience. We're going to be talking about food disruption, particularly disruption to the food supply chain that we've been seeing over the last few years and their implications. Michelle, it's it's been a period of challenges and disruption for the food sector over the past three to four years in particular. What would you single out as the most serious disruptors and how have you approached dealing with the challenges for each?
2: Yeah, well, there certainly has been a lot of disruptors in the food system. Lots of things impacting the work that we do, certainly at Cargill. But from the COVID-19 pandemic, to climate change, to the war in Ukraine, all really serious, serious issues that have had a ripple effect across the food system, and particularly impacting those who produce food. So we think about the farmers, food production workers, and of course, the people that we need to feed each day. So as Cargill has approached these, I think there's one common approach that we take, and that's starting with our values. So Cargill is always focused on putting people first, doing the right thing, reaching higher where we can. It's a long-term view that helps to guide our approach, especially when we're certainly working in crisis, but also through our everyday work. At Cargill, we really focused on the people in the food system. I think there's a lot of criticism of the food system, and I like to remind people that it's not a thing. It's a collection of people. We have farmers at one end. We're producing food through, through the system and then getting it to people who are hungry. And many of them have made really great sacrifices. I was just in Vietnam a couple months ago meeting with some of our plant facilities, talking to our employees who were experiencing long lockdowns and things like that during COVID. So they were away from their families trying to produce food and animal feed. And so I think it's important that we remember those people as we talk about some of these disruptions and the sacrifices that they've been making. I would also say that Cargill's approach is always about partnership. And so we work with great partners like the World Food Programme, CARE, others, when we're investing in programs that help to address emergency response issues, but also longer term, working in partnership with farmers, governments, our customers, our suppliers. It takes all of us to really address some of these very complex issues.
0: Let's think about the conflict in Ukraine in particular. What have been the options for dealing with the crisis for those in the country and for the impacts on global grain supply?
2: Well, I think it's important to acknowledge first that this area of the world is a breadbasket. The Black Sea Corridor plays a really significant role in growing key ingredients, things that go in basic staples like bread and animal feed and feeding people worldwide. And so as we think about our purpose to nourish the world in a safe, responsible and sustainable way, we're working every day with farmers and shippers and customers really to keep food flowing. This includes buying critical commodities that have maintained the flow of Ukrainian grain throughout the conflict, making sure that farmers can get their grain to market and get paid for that to support their families. And then also working to make sure that we can keep the Black Sea exports open. We have to get food out of there. It's critical to feeding the world. So we continue to pursue all the safe routes to get food out, whether it's through shipping corridors as well as through rail and others. And so working with farmers on storage and things like that as well. And then finally, just advocating for global collaboration. So Cargill works a lot with governments to sort of share our insights and our expertise, but we want to make sure that we're keeping those corridors open. We saw prices spike when things closed down, and we saw prices ease a little bit once we can get food flowing. So that's really our top priority and the expertise that Cargill brings to keep food supply
0: moving. You mentioned the World Food Programme earlier. Have you been working with them in Ukraine? Um, What have you been doing with the World Food Programme?
2: We have been. So the World Food Programme is one of our key partners. Cargill has actually invested more than $40 million to support humanitarian relief efforts in Ukraine. Specifically with the World Food Program, we made a contribution of $10 million to help support both the immediate relief efforts that they have been doing within the country, as well as to address the collateral implications of food security that we're seeing in other parts of the world. Our funding has supported emergency operations, providing food and cash based transfers, which is really important, providing cash to people in Ukraine so that they can purchase from local markets. That's a key strategy as well. We don't always want to bring in food right Right, where we can support the local economy and the local markets. That's key. Um, and then always with the World Food Program, thinking about the longer term resiliency. And so Cargill has worked with the World Food Program for over 20 years, supporting things like school feeding programs, helping connect farmers to those markets is really, really key. So, again, always taking that two pronged approach. How do we address local emergency needs? get people fed where they need it, but then also think about that longer-term resiliency. They've been a key partner for us in doing that work.
0: And of course, building long-term resilience is very important for farmers and grower communities around the world. Thinking about those communities for a second, what's the role of companies like Cargill, do you think, to help them adapt to changing and challenging conditions?
2: Our focus on farmers is a top priority, right? Cargill was founded 157 years ago working with farmers, so they remain at the center of Cargill's business model. We work with them on supporting sustainable farming practices, supporting and conducting farmer training programs. Cargill has a goal to reach 10 million farmers by 2030. We're well on our way. And then, of course, trying to connect farmers to markets. We do that through our everyday business. We also do that through key partnerships. One example would be the Hatching Hope Global Initiative that is focused on improving the nutrition and economic livelihoods of 100 million people by 2030. It's a pretty ambitious goal. And to date, we've reached about 17 million through programs in Mexico, Kenya, and, and India. And we're seeing really good results. So when we focus on improving the productivity and profitability of farmers, we're seeing household income grow. In Mexico, for example, after the investments that we made in the program, we saw incomes rise by about 60%. In India, the average net household income from livestock and byproducts nearly tripled during the project. Another focus of our work with smallholder farmers is really an emphasis on women. We know that when we invest in women, we see the payback of that. They invest in their children, in education, in improving nutrition, et cetera. And so we've got programs in partnership with organizations like Lady Agri in Cameroon, where we've helped Farmers diversify their income and plant, plant cassava in addition to cocoa, which is something that they've really come to rely on due to the rising prices of wheat. So switching to cassava is one example. We've worked with CARE for more than 60 years, actually, on programs to help improve livelihoods of women, help strengthen food security, improve access to markets for farmers. And we just actually renewed our partnership with them as well. We do it, as I said, in partnership with others, as well as through our direct business operations to provide training for farmers.
0: Yeah, I mean, so much of the necessary work with farmers does involve livelihoods, increasing incomes and realising that for smaller farming communities to be sustainable in the long term, it really just has to be about raising their incomes to a sustainable level. You mentioned a lot of the things you're up to. What about technology? Do you have any examples of the technology solutions that are making a difference at scale? I mean, everyone talks about technology as the great panacea, but do you have any concrete examples of where it really can work?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think technology is certainly one of the key solutions that we have to look at, and we're seeing that all over the world. I think farmers at every level of production need access to tools and technology to help improve efficiency, help improve yields and certainly their profitability. So one example, I had mentioned the Hatching Hope program. In India, agriculture makes up 20% of the GDP and employs about half the population, but farm productivity is between 30 to 50% of global benchmarks. And so really, this is a place where we need to focus on productivity. We see this in other parts of the world as well. But in India, we've deployed a model called Digital Sati. It's a mobile platform designed for small farmers. And provides access to crop input um, and output markets it provides access to weather helping farmers reduce their operational marketing and financial risks it also has a really cool feature called crop doctor which allows farmers to take pictures of their crop to help diagnose disease and get input things like that i think are really really helpful tools in turkey we have a program called the thousand farmers endless prosperity program we launched that in 2019 To date, we've reached about 4,000 farmers, and it's one of the largest farmer-facing consultancy programs in the country. And again, this is really focused on regenerative agricultural practices and using digital agricultural tools to help farmers access the information that they need to boost productivity and do it sustainably.
0: You've got lots of initiatives, lots of things going on with farmers. How do you bring them all together? You've mentioned some really interesting projects right now. How do you ensure at a kind of as a high level that these all work together to deliver the sort of impacts that Cargill is looking to deliver?
2: I think that that's a challenge. Um, Just overall, as we think about investing in farmer livelihoods, how do we bring these together and really achieve scale? So I think for Cargill, even just connecting the dots within our company, what are we learning in our palm supply chain and our cocoa supply chain that we can apply to others And then more broadly, how do we use forums like this to help make connections with other companies and and other partners to really scale these efforts? I do think that we continue to create new initiatives, and I think there's some great successful models, whether they're within Cargill or in others. And I think taking opportunities to share best practices and agree to partner and scale these efforts is only going to be more and more important as we go forward.
0: Climate change is a big issue for the food sector, one that is really impacting farmers and the food supply chain in general. What evidence do you have from within Cargill's supply chains where natural disasters and extreme weather events are increasingly having an impact?
2: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we're seeing more and more of that, and we're seeing it all over the world. So I think this goes back to my point earlier about the importance of focusing on on resiliency. We have to kind of move away from these just-in-time supply chain models and think about how do we adapt. Over the last couple of years, we've seen huge impacts in places like Central America. So Hurricanes, Eta and Iota made landfall in Honduras in 2020. Fortunately, we had a project there with CARE, uh, working with farmers already, so we were able to activate pretty quickly and help our farmers recoup losses experienced from the hurricanes. Also in the Philippines, Cargill works with an organization called Save the Children and have a yellow corn project. It's a holistic program designed to help smallholder corn farmers future-proof their farms and livelihoods against the impact of natural disasters. And so we're trying new things. And again, this is another place where I think our key learnings, we need to help apply those and share those so that we can adapt and invest in different kinds of partnership models going forward. There's no shortage. We're seeing it in the United States with the hurricanes that have hit here, Philippines, Central America,
0: all over the world. Do you think that there's been an acceptance amongst the likes of Cargill, Cargill, big food companies, that they simply can't not be front and center in finding solutions to deal with the climate change and climate change impacts?
2: I guess I don't know that there's been a change. I think companies like Cargill and others have had a deep responsibility to address these issues for a long time. What we're seeing is that there's such an increase in the number of instances. And so I think it's really raising the profile. And I think that the need is urgent for us to take even more action. And then I think as we talked about the key priority around collaboration, making sure that, that we're learning from one another. I do think that there's a greater focus today on putting farmers at the center. I think that there's a recognition that they have to be at the table agriculture is how we're going to address some of these big issues and so we have to be smarter we have to be more efficient we have to be more sustainable in our approach and i think companies like Cargill are working alongside farmers to do
0: just that you talked a little bit about cross sector learnings clearly some sectors cocoa palm oil for example have particularly well documented sector specific challenges but at the same time as you mentioned there's been a drive to move away from siloed approaches What's the right balance to strike then between these two seemingly contradictory approaches to ensure overall supply resilience?
2: This really goes back to collaboration. I think that we need to take landscape approaches, but I also think that there's there's benefit in learning. So when we think about the cocoa sector, there's actually been terrific collaboration in the cocoa sector as we've looked at issues from um, human rights issues to issues around deforestation. So companies, farmers, governments have come together to invest in key initiatives but again, these issues aren't standalone. And so to your point, I think we have to take a landscape view when we think about the environment and the impacts. So how do we take what we're learning in cocoa? How do we apply that in Palm? How do we think about this much more holistically? To me, the answer is really about collaboration. We have to be smart
0: about that. Smarter collaboration. I think everyone can agree to Maybe that. Maybe that's so it. Like, Smarter collaboration. The way- Definitely the way forward. At COP27 a few weeks ago, there was certainly a lot of discussion around the need for adaptation to climate change. What do you think would be the key future areas of adaptation that would be necessary for the food sector?
2: There's a lot that came out of COP and I think a great sense of urgency that we have to do more and do it faster. Um, And we really have to drive impact. And so I think one of the key areas that is focused on is regenerative agriculture. In 2020, we set a goal to support voluntary adoption of regen ag practices on 10 million acres in North America. And while we're starting here, this is certainly something that we're looking at across the globe. But this includes things like training and financial incentives to help farmers improve soil health, help improve efficient use of water, sustainable grazing practices, et cetera. And so while there's a lot more to do, we're making a lot of progress. We have about 700,000 acres of regenerative agriculture forecasted across our North America supply chain. And that number is growing. And as I mentioned, we're looking at additional partnership models in across Europe, across South America um, as well. And so I think regenerative agriculture is certainly one of the key tools in our toolbox as we think about what we can do to help support and partner with farmers and
0: drive those best practices. Do you think we've reached a tipping point on regenerative agriculture. I mean, it, it does feel that it, the solution to many problems that a lot of people are now have grabbed hold of. And do you think we've reached that tipping point? Is this the really the way that we're going to go?
2: I think it is. I think it's important to also think about what's in regenerative agriculture is a lot, right? And so really getting underneath that broad terminology, what are we actually going to do and deliver to help improve soil health and mitigate the impacts of climate? But I do think you're seeing increased focus on it from companies, from farmers. And I think it's important to remember, I mean, farmers are the stewards of our land. They want sustainable agricultural practices because they want to be able to plant next year and protect the livelihoods of themselves and of their families and of their communities. That's why we say putting farmers at the center of this, making sure that it's smart for farmers, that it's profitable, is key in any of the interventions that Cargill is focused on.
0: Well, a nice positive moment in which to leave things. I'm Michelle Grogg, Vice President, Corporate Responsibility and Sustainable Development at Cargill. Thank you very much for your time. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Ian. The Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. Look out for the recording of a webinar we held this week discussing the results of our recent supply chain trend survey. And don't forget to register now for the Future of Food event in Amsterdam on the 3rd and 4th of May to take advantage of the €400 Euro discount on passes that expires on Friday the 27th of January. But that's it for now. i am been Ian Welsh and until next week, goodbye.